Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, March 18th. Calgary's Beltline community wants police to put a stop to the weekly so-called freedom demonstrations that have been ongoing for the past two years. The Calgary Police Service will today outline their plans for how to deal with protesters in a meeting of the Calgary Police Commission. Member of the Commission and Ward 9 City Councillor Giancarlo Carra joined us to talk about what he says needs to be a necessary course correction. People living in that Beltline community have reached their breaking point with these weekly demonstrations and are planning to gather in force this weekend to take back their neighbourhood. With details on the Defend the Beltline plan, we talked with Peter Oliver, president of the Beltline Neighbourhoods Association. Misinformation is running rampant in Russia and this morning we spoke with Stephen Hall, assistant professor in politics, international relations and Russia at the University of Bath to find out what it's like for the Russian people living under the reign of Vladimir Putin. 2021 was an historic year in Canada for financial losses due to fraud. With details on how to protect yourself, we talked with Tony Anscombe, chief cybersecurity expert with global IT security software company ESET. And if you're looking for some entertainment this weekend, Brett McGarry, host of The Couch Potatoes, reviews two new movies at the theatre and a must-watch Netflix movie. The Beltline community wants police in the city to put a stop to the weekly so-called freedom demonstrations in their community. But what is the Calgary Police Force prepared to do? With some insight into today's Police Commission meeting, we're joined this morning by Police Commission member and Ward 9 City Councillor Giancarlo Carra. Good morning, Councillor Carra. Thanks for being with us. It's good to be here, Sue. Are you concerned about tomorrow? I think there are a lot of people quite worried about uh, what might happen with uh, all the focus on these protests and uh, how it may uh, turn out tomorrow with more people likely heading into the core. I think anyone who's been paying attention and who loves the city has got to be concerned about what might unfold tomorrow. Uh, to just quick clarification uh, in your opener, you said that the police commission met yesterday. Sorry, They're today, right? Meeting today. Yeah. Apologies. Thank you. Thank we're you. Going, st- yeah, no problem. Yeah, no, if you can talk about that. Thank you very much for, for pointing that out. Yeah, we're going into a private session with the chief from 2.30 to 3.30, and then we're emerging at 3.30 to 4.30 uh, with a public session. And I mean, what we're in the middle of is a significant course correction. So for, you know, almost two years of this pandemic, We've watched the rise of protesters. Police notably are calling these protesters anti-democracy protesters now because there are no mandates left to, uh, to protest. And um, it's not really clear what exactly their mission is except to um, make life, life difficult for people. And, and really, over the last several weeks, uh, I think the, the idea has been that you don't want to poke the bear. These guys are out there spoiling for a fight looking to pick a fight, and uh, we've sort of characterized, mischaracterized uh, their protesting as, uh, as peaceful and, and harmless. And uh, what we've heard very clearly from members of the Beltline and other affected neighborhoods is that, no, this is a material impact on everyone's lives, ability to go out and, and, and use their neighborhoods, the ability without getting harassed and intimidated, and uh, and potentially, you know, put in the way of, of public health vectors like like unmasked people who don't believe that there is still a virus circulating amongst us. It's also been a major impact to local businesses. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, it's become very clear 
that, um, you know, these are harmful. And, and, you know, local residents have stood up over the past two Saturdays. And last Saturday, unfortunately, uh, for the first time, use of force was uncorked by our police service. Uh, and it was not directed against the anti-democracy people. It was directed against the neighborhood protesters mm-hmm. who were standing there to sort of make a point that this is enough is enough. And so I think... Uh, between the outrage expressed by a commission, our citizen oversight uh, body, by members of council, and most notably by the public. And the public has done a remarkable job of sending in testimonial statement of harm. Uh, the police lines are flooded. Council lines are flooded. Uh, we realize we need to take a change of course. So the police, you know, notably have said that these guys are anti-democracy protesters. That's how they've characterized them. Uh, I don't disagree with that characterization. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have set out a, um, a notice saying don't protest in downtown Calgary and in the Beltline uh, this weekend. And, and uh, what we hear from the chief today is what exactly he's going to do about that. That's, you know, because for the last two years, we've basically escorted them along and made sure that, uh, you know, there was no property damage or anything, and now we're uh, now we're changing course. So it's going to be fascinating, and uh, it's it. I'm I'm feeling trepidation yeah. about what tomorrow looks like. I I think probably everybody's in the same boat. You, you know, you mentioned for certainly they are not. I've seen a lot of videos of what's been going on down there, and they are anything but peaceful and harmless protesters. And we, you know, we've had lots of texters who live in that area who say they don't even leave their homes between one and four on Saturdays. And, and like you said, the businesses are all being affected as well. So I know council kind of got together and sent a message to the police force. What is your message on behalf of council and what do you want to see ultimately done? Well, to be clear, um, council does not direct the police service. Right. Uh, we, di- we, we, we don't even direct police commission. Police commission is an independent citizen body. There are two members of council, myself and Ward 8 Councillor Courtney Walcott, sit on it and basically relay where council's at as part of the as part of, of police commission's job to sort of reflect where citizens are to the police and to make sure that the police, you know, are are equipped to do a job on behalf of the citizenry. And so the letter that was established in a, in a special meeting on Tuesday by council over to police commission said, hey, we got to let you know that what we're hearing from the citizenry is that this isn't on and things have to change. And given that this is such a fraught moment in time, we'd like more regular updates. And so what commission is doing is after we finish the uh, the meeting um, with the public uh, from 3.30 to 4.30 today, uh, we will be going into a private Zoom call to just give a little bit of a heads up to exactly what else might be going on that we can't share with the public uh, to to counsel. Well, I think we'll all be watching what happens tomorrow and everybody hoping for the best and most peaceful results and that Calgary Police will, will put an end to this for, for the sake of all the people and the businesses down in the Beltline area. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you very much. That is uh, Ward 9 Councillor Giancarlo Carra, who also sits on the Police Commission. So as you said, or as you heard him say, I should uh, say that uh, the Police Commission is meeting today. They will get a, an update from police as to what will happen tomorrow. I just want to let you know, uh, we'll go to commercial and come back in a couple of minutes. We're going to be talking to Peter Oliver, who is the president of the Beltline Neighbourhoods Association, and get his take on this issue. And after two years, the Beltline community is at its wit's end with the weekly so-called freedom demonstrations with details on how it's impacting the community and what efforts are being made to defend the Beltline. We're joined this morning by Peter Oliver, president of Beltline Neighborhoods Association. Good morning to you, Peter. Thanks for being with us. Morning, Sue. Not sure if you just heard, we spoke with Councillor Giancarlo Carra minutes ago. He says it's time for a course correction in terms of what's happening and what's being allowed to happen at these weekend rallies. What do you want to see happen tomorrow, Peter? Well, we're calling on everyone in Calgary who cares about the Beltline, who has uh, enjoyed the Beltline over the years, our, our neighbourhood, our small businesses, the restaurants, the patios, you know, beers at the ship, um, the stampede, um, music festivals, and, and dancing at one of our nightclubs even, um, to come here and stand with us so we can have our neighborhood back uh, after two years of this mob uh, every Saturday. Now that flies in the face, Peter, of what the police are saying, asking people not to come down to that area, but you're looking for numbers, I'm assuming then. We're looking for numbers. I mean, there's certainly safety in numbers. I think the most brave people were the residents who stood out uh, three weeks ago for the first time and stepped in front of this march of... uh, thousands of um, incoherent um, uh, people shouting and screaming down the street, waving all sorts of flags. And, uh, and, and that number's grown, and I've seen many, many more people come out, and there's certainly safety and security in numbers. And, I mean, we have a half-billion-dollar police force. Um, they ought to be, and they should be, and uh, as of you know, mid this week, um, the the chief is showing that potentially they're maybe seeing the light on this one. Now, for people who have been hearing about this in the news, but they've not been down to the area, particularly on a Saturday, how is this impacting people who live in the community and businesses that are trying to do their work in the you know in this community, particularly coming out of a two year pandemic? Yeah, right. Uh, well, this is certainly something more than just, um, you know, a playoff run of the flames or, you know, a, a busy night out after stampede. Um, it's a lot of noise, intimidation, traffic. It's a general atmosphere of, um, of, of aggression and, um, and intimidation, like I said, and harassment. And um, people uh, who live here who of maybe being walking down the street, have been yelled at, particularly if they're wearing a mask. Uh, Business owners um, have had people uh, come into their business and yell at their staff and customers. They've blocked the streets, clogged the streets, um, taken over our our central park um, every Saturday with all sorts of vendors selling uh, strange sort of white supremacist uh, merch and and hoodies and things. and it's prevented, um, not only has it, um, you know, hurt businesses, affected the mental health of residents, 
Um, but it's actually taken up a significant amount of public space that has prevented other voices from being heard, community events from happening in Central Memorial Park. And so it's far from anything about freedom in practice um, because it's actually starting to um, take away freedoms of, of mm-hmm. people who live here and other Calgarians who would come down here if they felt safe. Peter, thank you for sharing your message this morning. appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Peter Oliver, president of the Beltline Neighborhoods Association, and Peter's asking people to come down to that area on Saturday. But again, we'll remind you, the police are asking you to stay away from the Beltline as they're hoping to take control of things on Saturday. Has President Putin really kind of gone backwards in terms of what's happening socially in Russia? And what are the realities for the Russian people living under the reign of the ex-KGB strongmen? With Insight, we're joined this morning by Stephen Hall, Assistant Professor in Politics, International Relations and Russia at the University of Bath. Good morning, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Thank you for having me. What is the state of affairs in Russia in terms of of what the Russian people are? Are they aware of even sort of what's going on or or are they still really under control of of what Putin allows to to be given to them in terms of information? Um, Well, certainly they're under the control of the uh, propaganda machine let's let's call it for what it is uh state television is is run by you know television is run by the state and it only provides information that benefits the state we see the most recent poll that uh 55 of russians support the war in ukraine but again you have to peel back what they actually mean mm-hmm. by war because the russian government calls it a special military operation uh they don't and it only the television only really portrays the liberation of the Donbass, the humanitarian uh, aspects that the Russian army is, is doing, the fighting of so-called Nazis uh, that uh, the rest of Ukraine has been dehumanized into because it resonates with the Second World War, the great patriotic war in Russia of uh, the Soviet Union fighting Nazi Germany. So, yes, the majority of Russians get the news from Russian television and therefore are susceptible to this uh, perception, let's say, reality that the uh, government is providing them. Professor, what has changed in the last sort of handful of years or or has it or is it just is it just the information that we get in the West? I mean, you know, Russia wasn't really of much of a concern to us for a long time. You know, you hear all the stories of what it was like when, it, you know, Red Russia and the KGB, et cetera. And, we, and then we didn't hear about that kind of information for a long time. And now we're in the place where we're at, where Russia has invaded Ukraine. What has changed? Well, I think that this is this has been gradual, certainly, but uh, it's particularly kicked started up again with the 2011-2012 protests, Putin's re-inauguration for a third presidential term in 2012, his perception that the West is involved in regime change in Russia with the color revolutions 2004 in Ukraine, the Arab Spring, the 2011-2012 protests financed by America, ostensibly Hillary Clinton, um, and this is the perception, at least within the Kremlin, the inner circle next with Putin, that the West is 
out for regime change in, in Russia, that NATO has been expanding, as John Mearsheimer argues, and so that's the fault of NATO. Um, so, again, I think that this has been a slow and gradual build-up of the repressive capacity of the regime, the control over media, and the taking away slowly but rapidly because of the Ukraine invasion uh, what was left of independent media. So do you believe then Russia is, is moving backwards in, in terms of, you know, moving back towards sort of that Soviet era repression then? I think that certainly the Soviet Union serves as a, as a case study. I mean, Putin was socialized within the Soviet Union, as were many of his inner circle, former KGB members, most of them. Um, in terms of there are, of course, differences between what happens now in a more modern authoritarian regime and what happened in the Soviet Union. But we are seeing the disappearance of the last vestiges of independence, the jading of Alexei Navalny, the opposition, so-called opposition leader, for want of a better term, because there isn't really anyone else. Um, the ending of media, uh, TV dodged, has now disappeared. Only Navarre Gazeta is left, and that's probably because its editor, Dmitry Muratov, won the Nobel Prize last year, and going after him wouldn't look, even though Russia has invaded Ukraine, the elites still care, at least for now, about their perception in the West. So jailing a Nobel Prize winner wouldn't look good. Um, so, yes, it certainly is going back. It's becoming more authoritarian. If that means it's becoming more Soviet, minus the ideology, very possibly. Well, what about, you touched on it, for Russian media who have the, the nerve to report the realities of what is happening in that country and therefore what's happening, you know, in Ukraine and beyond, what happens to those members of the media who dare to voice their opposition or the truth? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, you know, they are, Navigator has a relatively small readership. Um, it's, there is a fine line and the regime will send signals as to what is to be reported and what isn't. If they cross that line, then the editors will get phone calls as to what, why, why they've published that. They'll have to retract it. So there's also blacklists um, for websites primarily, uh, but also for media as to what can be taught about. And in terms of... Um, the focus that's being given, you have the foreign agents law that more and more uh, media sources are having to put uh, this title of foreign agent on their publications. And foreign agent has connotations from the start of this period of spies for Nazi Germany, uh, Britain, France, the capitalist, the capitalist West. So this is a slow, as I argue, 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 boiling of the frog process. It's been slow, but the heat has been turned up most recently. It's just so foreign to what we can relate to. It kind of leads me to my last question. What is it like for the people of Russia? I mean, just day-to-day living, we have really no clue what it's like in that country. What is it like for them? Well, I mean, the... The, situ- the situation, if the sanctions do begin to bite and there is evidence that they are, then uh, it will get much tougher 
for the people. Many of the businesses in Russia are state-controlled, particularly outside Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, and so people are reliant on the state for their very existence to a great extent. We are starting to see um, the build-up of almost this national uh, identity. I don't want to make connotations with Nazi Germany. I think that's a bit too overblown, but certainly some sort of identity that the state is trying to foist, uh, particularly with the Ukraine conflict, around the Z symbol of we are not ashamed for what has happened in Ukraine. Uh, this is for Russia, for the president, for Putin. Um, it's become quite scary, I would say, and the majority of the electorate at least seem to be supportive of this. Um, and. I think that there is also, they aren't given the information, certainly, but I think that there is also this belief that somehow a miracle will occur, the war will end, uh, Putin may go, I don't know, but uh, that they have been promised victory by the regime and that the, the next few weeks, months, years are going to be dark, but the Russian people have never started a war. The Russian people have never been defeated. They will be victorious eventually mm. and hold on to that is, I think, pretty much the regime's mantra for the next uh, few months, especially if sanctions start to really hit. Fascinating discussion of life in Russia in 2022. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stephen Hall, Assistant Professor in Politics, International Relations and Russia at the University of Bath. March is Fraud Prevention Month, and according to a report by the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, 2021 was an historic year for financial losses because of fraud. With some details on what to look out for to protect us, we're joined this morning by Tony Anscombe, Chief Cybersecurity Expert with global IT security software company ESET. Good morning to you, Tony. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Susie. Appreciate it. Uh, how common are scams and fraud, Tony, and why are we seeing such an increase of late? Unfortunately, they're incredibly common. And if you look at uh, scams over the pandemic period, they only got worse because cyber criminals saw there was a, a bigger opportunity because we were all spending more time online. I mean, when you open your inbox in the, in the mornings, you know, just look through all the phishing, things looking for you know, either fraudulent products, trying to get your credentials, or just trying to get your data. I mean, our inboxes are full of it, especially mm -hmm. around the cryptocurrency uh, topic as well. So let's get right to some tips then, Tony. Can you help us out? How do we avoid falling victim to a scam? I mean, these guys are getting pretty good at it. It's not They're not the most obvious ones that we used to always see. Incredible skepticism about everything that lands in your inbox or you find on the internet, especially in social media networks. Cyber criminals will try and suck you in with... Uh, stories of getting rich quick, uh, and especially be cautious around uh, long, longer-term relationships. So, for example, romance scams in dating sites where somebody will nurture their victim over three, four months. Uh, but the, that's also true of investment, investment scammers as well. They may well do that uh, to get trust. And once they've got trust, of course, somebody then may invest $1,000, $2,000 or send the scammer money. So... Skepticism, uh, question everything, and it, yeah, check out the person. You know, get their picture, do a reverse image lookup in Google, 
and see whether they've got more than one identity. Mm-hmm. I think it's always a good reminder to tell the older folks in our world too. Not that they're the only ones that can fall victim, but we have to remind them and be pretty careful with them as well. What about with the war in Ukraine? Is that being used to scam us? Yes, unfortunately, we saw uh, very early on uh, when uh, the conflict started, we saw some fi- uh, some scams appearing in phishing emails saying that you know they're sending money to the Ukraine army or sending money for refugees or whatever. If it lands in your inbox and it's unsolicited, it's probably not real. And if you're going to give money, make sure you're going through a very credible source. You know, go back to your own government and ask them where they recommend you sending money or go to the United Nations or the International Red Cross or such like uh, and make sure you're sending it to an organisation that will actually get the money there. Tony, were a lot of us pretty lonely after two years of pandemic? Are romance scams still a big thing? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, And I think what gets reported is scratching the surface because I think when somebody is a victim of romance scams, uh, they are embarrassed and don't report the crime. Uh, And this is an issue where somebody will befriend somebody on a dating site or over social media. They will become very, very... uh, endearing to that person they will profess love early on and then they will come up with some really elaborate story of needing money for health care or to travel to see them etc and this could be three six nine months down the line and uh, unfortunately it's a real it's a real emotional scam what what do we do i mean so you said be really leery when you open your email so it's is it as basic as don't click on and open attachments so you don't know where they came from well, I actually have the rule, Susie, of not uh, not clicking on any link in my email. So if somebody says, if, if I get an email that has a link in it, and I think, oh, well, that might be real, I actually go to the web page. If it's somewhere I've got an account, log on, because they're going to re-show you that message on their website anyway. So I just avoid all things in email. You know, read, read it, and then go find some other way to go get it. Um, and attachments, only, only from trusted sources. If there's an attachment in the email and you, it's unsolicited, delete it. Fair enough. Great reminders. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. And you. Thank you. Tony Anscombe is the chief cybersecurity expert with global IT security software company ESET. You can go online with the letters ESET.com. Friday morning. Let's get you prepped for the weekend. It's time to check in with Brett McGarry of the Couch Potatoes. Good morning, Brett. Hi there. We have a couple of new movies to tell folks about, but let's begin with one that you and I have both watched. It is a Netflix movie, and I give it double thumbs up. It's The Atom Project. What did you think about it? I really enjoyed it, and uh, I went in, I think maybe I was able to enjoy it because I kind of kept my expectations low. Um, (laughs) And look, I know Netflix has, they have put out movies that are Oscar-worthy, Oscar-nominated films, but for the most part, when a movie debuts on netflix regardless of the star power there is a tendency for it to be disappointing because Mm -hmm. if the movie was good enough to be if it was a really good movie most for the most part it would be released in theaters or be released through a traditional studio so like i can't tell you how many times i've watched movies on netflix and gone well ah, that could have been better like uh, that Bird Box, Sandra Bullock movie. Yep. That was overhyped to the extreme. It was not good. Um, so with the Adam Project, I just thought, okay, you know what? This looks like a fun family movie, and uh, it's probably not all that great, so I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. But 
because of the fact that the, this, one of the main stars is a kid who gets to meet his older self, because the Adam Project is about Ryan Reynolds uh, going he crash lands back in time, and he has to work with his younger self to save the future. It felt like I was watching a movie, like a like a family sci fi film from the from the eighties. Like I felt like a kid again. Yeah, it could have been and, like one of those old Disney movies, you know, back in the day. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Like I think of now that that, that makes me think of something like Flight of the Navigator. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that movie. Um, so that's what it, like it was simple. It didn't get bogged down in the science. Um, you know, I found it oddly like surprisingly touching and heartwarming. Me too. Um, did you cry, Brett? I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. See, a there of times. you go. Yeah. So it, look, it's not a great movie. But it it doesn't try to be anything other than what it is, yeah. which is a family, fun, sci-fi. So I would give it four couch cushions out of five. I think anybody with kids uh, in like the eight to eleven brackets could probably would probably have a great time with this. Totally agree. Um, and I didn't even watch it with my kids. I, so yeah, you know, I, did. well, I don't have kids. It's just me and so, a bag of chips. Yeah, it is. It's a fun <laughs> movie. The premise is really neat. I really enjoyed it too. So I highly recommend it as well. And yeah, go in with you know an open mind. It's just fun, and it, it is. I think I think Netflix. That's probably one of the better ones they've done. Yeah, yeah, right. He has, he did another movie. Well, he's done a, a few now on Netflix. He had that one, uh, what was it called, Red Notice, uh, with The Rock and Gal Gadot that oh, came out a right. few months ago. And he had another one last year called Six Underground. Uh, it was a Michael Bay movie, which has some insane action, by the way. The first 20 minutes of that movie are nuts. Okay, maybe I'll look for those this weekend. I like Ryan Reynolds. He's he's always, he's just, he is, he's Ryan Reynolds always, isn't he? Yeah, and the kid is is... Like does a magnificent job of being a young Ryan Reynolds. He's, He's just as good. He is the old Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Scoble is his name. Apparently, it's his first acting gig. So yeah, I think we're in agreement on this one. The Adam Project is uh, is one to watch. Okay, we've got a couple on. Are these on the big screen? These two new movies. Yes, the first one is called The Outfit, and uh, both of these movies I'd never heard of, and they're both getting. Amazing reviews. The Outfit stars Mark Rylance, who is an Oscar winner, and he it's set in the 1950s. He plays a tailor who gets visited by a mobster, and the mobster has some sort of a mystery package that all the other gangsters are trying to get their hands on, and they all come to the shop, so he just has to figure out how to survive the night, and it looks really good. It just looks like kind of a simple... Uh, heady thriller and it's getting like i think it was at 96 percent oh cool on rotten tomatoes so there's that movie and the other one is called x and this is set in 1979 and it's about a group of uh filmmakers quote unquote because i say quote unquote because they're trying to make an adult film in rural texas <laughs> and uh the place they go to i guess it's owned by an elderly couple and the elderly couple doesn't take too kindly to what they're doing when they find out. And so they go on a murderous rampage. And apparently it's awesome. Oh, like, really? I guess it, yeah, it's like a fresh take on the slasher genre. And I guess because of the, the, the setting and the time, there's good music and whatnot. So 
Yeah, and that, that's, that was at like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. I saw the trailer for it, and I saw the creepy old lady, and it freaked me out, and I thought, this looks bad, but if you say so, maybe maybe I'll check it out, or maybe I won't, because I'm afraid of horror movies. But is well, it, they, <laughs> if you don't like horror movies, then don't watch it. It's yeah. a good option anyway. Okay, the outfit and X on the big screen. Maybe check out The Adam Project on Netflix. Thanks, Brett. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks. Brett McGarry of the Couch Potatoes. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.